fellow foodies, welcome back to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. I'm your host, Dr. Cassandra Quave. When it comes to what we should eat, confusion can often reign. One day, news headlines state that coffee can cause cancer. The next, it's that, that coffee is a key to long life. One day, eggs are bad for heart health. The next day, they're the perfect protein to start your day. And that's all before considering the environmental costs associated with various foods. Should almonds and avocados, while nutritious, be passed over because of concerns around water usage? And what about all the lingo around farm-raised versus wild-caught and food labels like all-natural, organic, fair trade, grass-fed, animal welfare approved, no antibiotics? What do all of these terms actually mean? And that's one reason I'm, I'm so excited to speak with our guests this week. I've got Sophie Egan on the line, and she has some important tips to share based on her new book, How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, Others, and the Planet. Sophie is a Stanford lecturer and a New York Times contributor whose work at the Culinary Institute of America and now her own agency, Full Table Solutions, has galvanized a nationwide movement to help all of us make healthier, more sustainable food choices. From moms to mayors, restaurant chains to food service companies, K through 12, school districts to universities. Sophie has written for the Washington Post, Eating Well, Time, The Wall Street Journal, Bon Appetit, Wired, and Sunset Magazine. Her first book, Devoured, How What We Eat Defines Who We Are, is a journey into the American food psyche. She holds a master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley, with a focus on health and social behavior. So welcome to the show, Sophie. It's so great to meet you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. So let's just dive in. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what attracted you to this topic, what motivated you to write this book? Absolutely. So you mentioned my first book, Devoured, and this was really uh, an anthropological, uh, kind of social science-based uh, inquiry, really trying to understand um, how American values drive our daily relationships to food. I, I call it sort of a bird's eye view on ourselves or holding a mirror up. And throughout my book tour, I would get so many questions during interviews like this or events um, that were essentially like, okay, yeah, all that background is great, but should I eat coconut oil or olive oil? Or, you know, sort of cut to the chase, is gluten good or bad? Um, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm trying to tell you the big picture here. Um, but fundamentally, we're all trying to navigate these just daily decisions um, that are so daunting for all kinds of reasons, right? The food environment is daunting. There's too many choices. There's all kinds of marketing ploys being thrown at us like bombs. Um, and there's tons of information overload as well as misinformation and intentional disinformation campaigns that as you kind of indicated in the intro, often make us just want to throw our hands up and say, to hell with it. I'll just eat, you know, hot pockets and hope for the best. <laughs> um, but no, 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 there is hope. And really my goal, uh, sort of the, the need that I felt, it was not only from, from that experience, but also uh, from my role at the New York Times where I answer reader questions. And I was seeing that oh my gosh, if New York Times readers who are like some of the most widely read, highly educated people are having this much confusion, um, you know, and, and then reading, I started to dig into the data and seeing 
uh, if it counsel for foundation would find that, you know, uh, seven in 10 Americans are confused about what to eat. And this makes the majority of them doubt their food choices. Just was seeing how much um, anxiety really this, this um, decision, fatigue, decision, confusion had created. And I wanted to uh, be kind of the prescription lenses for, for American eaters saying here is the full set of bottom line questions to your most top of mind questions about bottom line answers to your most top of mind questions about what to eat. And the, the book is divided into 60 uh, short uh, kind of essays or chapters that are a lot of those most top of mind questions. And the key is that I'm giving you evidence-based answers. This is um, hard to find, honestly. And it's also what I call radically practical. I felt as I was navigating and seeing all this, this anxiety that there had become such a surge in, in sort of food tribalism and and kind of crazy wacky diets um, that just the kind of more common sense, um, more um, practical, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, ways of eating, you know, everything in moderation, that kind of uh, rules of the road had become the more radical thing, <laughs> you yeah. know? like eating a mix of foods is like um, somehow sort of more radical. So this is definitely not a diet, uh, but really it's it's a decision-making tool or, or compass for the long haul. Uh, we can great. certainly dig into that, but that that's that's the goal of the book. And that's really the this this unmet need that I felt uh, a yearning to, to help address. That's great. Um, I work a lot with college students in my class um, on called Food, Health, and Society. And one of the challenges that I gave to them a few weeks ago was to look at the level of sugar in some of their foods, because many of them consider themselves to be very healthy eaters. They're very conscious. They, you know, have a lot of smoothies. And I started asking questions, well, how much sugar is going into those smoothies? And when a box says it's all natural, what does that really mean? And do you have any tips in the book about how to decode the marketing on these box foods. Yes. Oh my gosh. So this is actually, um, in some ways, the the, the starting point for this book. I, I wrote this guide for the New York Times that was literally called "How to Read a Food Label," <sighs> and it is so complex that we had to make it a four or five part series a number of years ago. And I can remember wow. the, the number <laughs> of parts um, because there's a lot. So I broke it up into. Okay, so kind of what to pay attention to, like nutritionally, what are we looking for? Mm -hmm. Basically, you know, you're what you want to look at calories, uh, the type of fat, not the amount of fat, the type you want to look at added sugar, which thankfully now is actually separated from total sugar. Mm -hmm. um, don't worry about, you know, sugar from fruit, for example, um, versus added, you know, cane sugar. Um, and kind of which <clears throat> nutritional elements to be concerned with in the first place. Um, and then really the navigating front of pack uh, claims, which is um, where all that marketing stuff lives. And then how to actually read the boring black and white stuff, which is usually on the back or the side. Uh, so in terms of my tips, my number one tip is flip it over. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Play, pay no attention um, to the stuff on the front, which People don't necessarily understand which why would we right? but um, one of the crazy kind of situations in food marketing is that the front is all um, 
it's a billboard. It's a giant billboard. It's where companies can put their beautiful um, imagery and claims. Now there's degrees of verification for claims. Maybe you get into that in your class um, mm -hmm. that are regulated and it depends, you know, structure function claims and these different types of things. But there are many, many, many words that are not regulated. They have, have no federally um, agreed upon definition like natural. Mm -hmm. um, or they have definitions, but only if they're accompanied with a third party certification sort of verifying that, that definition was met. So all of which is to say that it's just noise and <laughs> you're best off just homing in on those two boring black and white parts, which are the nutrition facts panel and the ingredients list. And they are standardized, they're on every food package, right? And there are certain things that have to be included in there, allergens, for instance, um, and so once you've sort of filtered out the, the, the distraction, uh, the distracting language, and you just focus on those two parts, then I really encourage you to essentially cross-reference those two things. So the ingredients list, there's some questions, oh, you know, does the shortest number of possible ingredients, clean labels, and there's some merit to the number of ingredients as a signal of how good or bad it is, but it's not, um, as simple as we might like. Uh, what I mean is you could have a jar of peanut butter that says only three, only three ingredients and it only has three ingredients, but I would argue there should be one ingredient in a jar of peanut butter, peanuts, <laughs> the other two ingredients in there, it might be sugar, palm oil. Um, in the past, it might be partially hydrogenated oils or trans fats, which now generally recognized, not generally recognized as safe. So it's been completely stripped out of the food supply. Um, but you might have other kind of, you know, things in there that don't belong, right? Um, on the flip side, you might have some kind of a sauce or a dip or like a salsa that has like 17 ingredients, but they're really flavorful. <laughs> they're like yeah. garlic, onion, jalapeno pepper, serrano pepper, tomato, right? And we can't get to um, sort of black and white with, with these rules of the road. Um, but what does matter? What is a very good rule of thumb is the first ingredient is the most important um, because ingredients go into sending uh, order uh, by weight. The other thing on the nutrition facts um, panel is that you are looking to get um, basically keep sodium low, keep total calories low, um, and uh, added sugar. There's I have a whole section in the book that gives you actually the numerical targets. I don't expect most people to remember those. Um, I certainly don't go around with like a calculator. Okay, I'm at 17% of my daily, you know. <laughs> yeah. Having a general ballpark can be helpful because you know, okay, wow, I'm really blowing the, you know, my whole sugar budget on this can of soup. Um, by... Or you would you wouldn't expect to have sugar in your can of soup either. Yeah. Exactly, and mm -hmm. that's one of the main kind of things I I try to bring to light is like just empowering eaters with these tools for navigating claims can at least ensure that you're making these choices intentionally. Like, yeah, I want to, you know, eat a lot of sugar for a phenomenally delicious dessert. Like I didn't want to inadvertently blow all my, you know, added sugar budget for the day on bread or mm -hmm. um, yeah, soup or ketchup or something that you weren't thinking it was salad dressing is another one. People don't realize how much can be in there. Yeah. So it's really kind of, uh, having the information so that you're making these choices of your own volition really intentionally. Um, and there's a whole bunch of details of the book, but those are kind of the, the first few steps that will cover a lot of ground. That's great. Yeah. I think it's, it's so empowering just to 
to have that knowledge of how to interpret these, the signals on the packaging. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that I really encourage um, my students to do is when it comes to salad dressing is to actually make it yourself. It's, it's incredibly simple to make salad dressing and you don't have to have all those added sugars. Um, yeah. 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 It's fun once you start to, you know, get a little up in arms about like, what is all the sodium, you know, salt doing in my, um, you know, in my cookie or what is all this sugar doing in my, you know, something not sweet. Um, and then how you can not get mad, but get even by making it yourself. Right. I was actually thinking about this. I have twin toddlers and they've, um, you know, one time let, let them have the peanut butter cracker mm -hmm. or sandwich crackers. Uh, it was, you know, traveling or something. And I'm, and I'm like, Oh no, no, we're not doing that again. But of course they asked for them. And then I had the light bulb moment. I could take two crackers that I feel good about, slather some peanut butter that I feel good about. And this is a much healthier, fresher, you know? Um, so I love that kind of just general uh, reframing of like- Reframing, hmm, yeah, of what you can do. You can get around some of these these pesky you know ingredient situations just by by taking control right and, and that's the ultimate transparency too of course is um is when you are cooking from scratch uh you know when it, yeah. whenever possible and often there's financial savings when you're making it yourself too absolutely you're often paying for somebody else to have done the labor the chopping the whatever mixing it together <laughs> yeah absolutely well i thinking about kids foods too um, I remember when mine were little, they would always bag for the kids yogurts. Mm -hmm. And then I started looking at the labels, these yogurts, you know, and they were just full of so much, so much sugar. So I was like, what is all of this in yogurt? This is not yogurt. This is candy. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of things to wade through. Um, well, beyond beyond understanding how these labels impact or how to interpret them and understanding that they do impact our health there's also a consideration of planetary health and i know this is something that you're also passionate about can you tell us a bit about how understand how our food choices really um play a role in climate action absolutely yeah so you know the broad scope of the book is this mental checklist essentially three apertures ways to evaluate um foods along the spectrum of good bad worth my grocery dollars or not and and essentially i i suggest that you ask yourself three questions is it good for me is it good for others and is it good for the planet and it's exactly as you indicated which is that it's important Absolutely. And for most people, it's the most important. I mean, consumer insights data shows that nutrition and health are higher on the list than uh, social or animal welfare, environmental factors. But it's not sufficient, I would argue, for if you desire to be a conscious eater. And to me, being a conscious eater is aligning your food choices with your values. Um, and so you have to really determine what those are for you, again, in sort of the hierarchy. Um, but it's not sufficient to only sort of account for the impact on yourself or your family. Uh, really, I, I suggest thinking about the impact on others, which is all the animals and people affected from farm to fork, farm to grocery basket or farm to table. Um, so this is what were the animal welfare conditions, the livestock, if it's an animal-based food, what are the impacts on surrounding 
um, wildlife and pollinators, uh, what, how were workers treated? How were they paid? Um, this could be farm workers, restaurant workers, retail workers, warehouse workers, right? Um, and then on the environmental side, uh, climate impact is, is definitely the biggest uh, factor. This is, is emissions, uh, carbon emissions mm -hmm. chiefly, but also water footprint, right? And impacts on surrounding ecosystems, impact on ocean health and, and marine habitats, um, impact on sur surrounding um, air quality, um, and things like nitrogen runoff uh, and, and soil impacts. So there are kind of many sub factors within each of these buckets. Um, but essentially, the, the thrust of the book is that more often than not, you don't necessarily have to make trade offs. There are definitely cases of that where you're sort of choosing one over the other. But the beautiful news, <laughs> what's convenient is that more often than not, when you're choosing something that's good for you, it's often going to be better for others and better for the planet. And conversely, something that's really awful for you tends to also be, you know, not great for others on the planet. I mean, just to give an example, if you're opting for organic produce, say, um, and that you're doing so because you don't want pesticides on your fruit and in your own body, that also means that there's not a bunch of yucky chemicals going into the water waterways, into the soil, um, affecting the wildlife surrounding the farmland and then the farm workers are not who in terms of health impacts at a dose level typically suffer far worse health consequences right um than us through ingestion um because of just how how much they're they're being exposed to um and so that's a win-win-win right and what is uh, really kind of a, a central call to action in the book is to find those win-win-wins um, wherever possible. Another really big theme in the book is that food is one of the most powerful and yet one of the most overlooked tools for climate action, period. And especially when it comes to what we can do individually, right? Because we eat three times a day at least. Um, and if you're a parent, you have a multiplier effect because you're feeding a family, you're shaping the identities of your children um, and the, the choices that they're going to make over time. And so that's where you get, you know, really kind of scale um, yeah. with, with what you as a household decision maker uh, are, are affecting. And what I mean when I say that it's an overlooked tool is so often in the climate conversation, it's, you know, renewable energy and transportation, electric vehicles and windmills, and all of those things are really important, but it's not either or. And there's this great list um, from Project Drawdown of the 80 plus, they're constantly adding to it, but, um, you know, these are dozens and dozens and dozens of the most effective solutions for reversing global warming. And literally the number one, the top of the list is reducing food waste. Wow. Um, and what you are, you know, when you probe into it, it's like, oh my gosh, if food waste were a country, it, it would be the third largest emitter behind the US and China. Um, I mean, these are, this just shows you the full extent of all the resources that are going to waste, right? Growing the food, all of the inputs, all the machinery on the farm, um, everything involved in processing the food in a factory, turning it into something um, that you want to eat, uh, transporting it, packaging it, putting it on a shelf somewhere, um, and then ultimately disposing of it. 
So far and away, food waste reduction as an eater, reducing your food waste, and we can get into that if you're interested. Um, there's tons of tips in the book, um, is one of the most effective things you can do. The third most effective list, uh, most effective solution overall on, on their list is plant-rich diets. And this is another big theme of the book, which is that in general, uh, foods that come from the plant kingdom, or what I call stuff that comes from the ground, have a better impact on human health and on planetary health. Uh, in general, they take less resources to produce because you're eating the plant foods directly instead of feeding the plants to animals to turn into human food. Um, and this is called many different things, plant-centric, plant-forward, flexitarian, mm -hmm. and it can include vegetarian and vegan, but does not by any stretch mean that you have to completely eliminate animal-based foods. It just means aiming to, uh, over time throughout your, your life lifetime, emphasize foods from the plant kingdom kind of in terms of ratios. So those two things alone, if those are the only two things that you focused on, um, you would be doing a huge uh, service and, and really it adds up throughout your lifetime and throughout all of us doing this collectively uh, in terms of, of really reducing greenhouse gas emissions for the kind of final total perspective of all global emissions, it's estimated that about a third, the newest data shows used to be a quarter. Now they're showing really food systems account for fully a third of greenhouse gas emissions. So this is a wow. big dent that we can make uh, a, a huge impact on through our daily food choices. Well, that's amazing. Yeah. I really like the plant forward concept because it's, you know, great for the planet and great for your body as well. Um, some of the things that you were mentioning earlier on, um, with making choices though, I, I could tell you that so many of us get so overwhelmed in the store. I mean, I get to thinking about, well, where does this vegetable come from or how far was it shipped or, you know, what, like you said, what are some of the, the human impacts on production of that, of that, you know, product at the local site? Do you have tips on how to wade through all that information? I mean, how does, how does the average consumer go into the grocery store and think, well, this is going to be, you know, a better choice than that? Yeah. Well, I feel that a hundred percent, first of all. So a general rule that before you even talk about what food to, um, or, or which food item is better than this item, I really encourage folks to think about focusing your mental energy on the foods you eat most frequently. So if you're on vacation or you're um, having a birthday dinner or you're eating, I don't know, it's a you know, special holiday and you're making some kind of special dinner, I really wouldn't sweat it um, because just in terms of the aggregate impact, the foods we eat on a daily basis are routinized eating habits. So what's your go-to morning coffee? What do you have every weekday for breakfast? What is your lunch routine? Is it cold cuts or is it a hummus and avocado sandwich, right? What is your Friday night family pizza ritual? Mm -hmm. Those things that you do over and over and over have the biggest impact on yourself mm -hmm. and on the planet. Um, so first and foremost, it's like, okay, you don't have to spend the same amount of time <laughs> researching, deciding, fatigue, right? Um, every single food that ever enters your house. I mean, that's impossible for yeah. all of us. And, and one of the, uh, the things I always want to underscore is please do not let perfect be the enemy of the good, because often it can feel like, 
where do I even start? Um, and, and that can sort of be paralyzing so that we don't even begin. And that's why I think just starting with one thing. Okay. So let's say, uh, one of the things we know from, from habit formation, uh, mentioned my, my background in health and social behavior is that Monday is a great day to start a new habit. <laughs> um, this is why people start meatless Monday. Many people learn to, ex you know, I'm going to start running on Monday and, and there's all kinds of reasons, a fresh start and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, so you could pick say your Monday, I'm just making this up breakfast and just start there. Okay. And so whatever that is, you're going to focus on your granola or your toast um, and look for simple swaps, um, both in the foods. And then once you're looking at the actual food, which product, or, so you go kind of as a, a funnel, right? Like it's which meal am I going to look at, which foods, and then which products within those food categories. So to make this very concrete, let's say it's, you always have butter and toast for breakfast uh, during the week. You could say, okay, is there an alternative that's going to be better for me others on the planet? Um, what about say almond butter, peanut butter, some kind of nut butter, um, nuts and peanut butter, peanuts, for example, have a super low environmental impact. Legumes in general are nutritional superheroes and it tends to be quite affordable. Um, there's no animals involved, so it's a far lower impact overall than butter. Mm -hmm. So that could be a quick swap. Then within the category of peanut butter, which one do I pick? Now you're looking, okay, I'm in the peanut butter aisle. Um, and you're looking for, again, no, you know, added sugar. Why do you need to have added sugar in your peanut butter? Um, and you might be looking at factors like, so, you know, the, the nutritional elements, and then you might be looking for some other sort of third party signifier. Is this from a B Corp? B Corp is a, 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 one of the symbols, a third-party stamp of high environmental and social responsibility. Oh, nice. So that could be one solution in terms of picking which brand. Uh, another thing you might look at is organic. Um, lots of things we could say about organic, but organic is a very rigorous certification for uh, environmental factors. Not so much on animal welfare or social factors, but absolutely for environmental factors. So that's essentially sort of how I would look at it and, and not try to take on everything all at once, um, but really focus again on those things that you're doing over and over. And then the beautiful thing is once you've made the swap, you know, you've already invested the time, um, you will start to feel like more of your items are accounted for and it's uh, all that upfront legwork will pay off. That's great. I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. Because it takes away some of the overwhelming, like, ah, where do I start? Where do I begin? Yeah. And you're, and you're so right. We definitely, I think so many households have kind of their set menu that they cycle through every two weeks of like, it's, you know, it's pizza night or, right. or it's steak night. And I want to talk a bit about meat. Cause there's something in the book where you talk about, um, you know, start with less and then better. Can you tell us about that from a perspective of, of changing behavior? Yeah. So this one is always tricky because as Americans, as humans, really, we don't like to have something taken away. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the simple facts, countless scientific uh, publications point to the same general direction for aligning optimal nutrition with while staying within planetary boundaries. This means while uh, not using more than the earth has in terms of natural resources mm -hmm. to produce the right amount of nutritious food for the growing population. 
What that suggests is that collectively we must reduce the total livestock production um, on planet Earth. Um, and that means that each of us, uh, particularly in the US, where we consume about three times the, day, the recommended amount of red meat, and we consume way more than the average globally. Um, so some countries around the world won't need to make these same changes. Their diets are, are, are already inherently plant-centric, plant-rich, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we have, as Americans, a very high per capita carbon footprint of our, of our food choices, um, not only because of meat, but it's red meat in particular. So the first less means that, you know, finding wherever it is in your, in your diet. Uh, one thing I always love to suggest is like, do you eat a sandwich with cold cuts? I mentioned this before. Um, mm -hmm. This is, I think, a relatively easy swap for people to make, and they often don't even realize, oh yeah, I'm eating salami, that's red meat. Um, but so red meat in the US is mainly beef, pork, and lamb. Ruminant meats are meats that are animals that have a rumen as a certain kind of stomach. These are the highest um, emitters. Uh, so it's namely lamb and beef, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, what happens is they're in their burps as a high amount of methane emissions. Methane is a greenhouse gas that's actually way more powerful than carbon. And so beef and lamb are especially critical to reduce consumption of. Um, now in the US we don't eat as much lamb per capita, so it's beef is the biggest target uh, mm -hmm. for reduction. So finding where in your diet, in your, you know, there's many different ways I could suggest doing this. Um, one is, uh, so, you know, looking at a swap for your weekday lunch routine, if, if cold cuts or kind of a sandwich is, is something there. Other people have found success with um, Meatless Monday or, um, you know, sort of picking certain days of the week. Uh, some people have even gone so far as to say, I'm only gonna eat meat or I'm only gonna eat red meat on weekends as a treat. Um, I've heard, you know, Dr. Walter Willett, one of the most cited, uh, nutritionists or researchers period in, in all of academic literature, he's really encouraging people to think of beef as we think of lobster, a special occasion food. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there's some like mental reframings and then there's the practical, what is your household's two week cycle, right? How many of those 14 meals, dinners have red meat in them? And that's a really good place to, to start. Um, another, you know, option that uh, Mark Bittman has put forward is BB6 or vegan before 6 p.m., meaning, you know, breakfast, lunch, um, some kind of snack are all totally plant-based and then dinner is whatever. You know, I see pros and cons to these different approaches, but it's really about finding what's going to work for you and be sustainable because yeah. one of the things that I really try to underscore is that it is so much more impactful for your own health, for the health of the planet, uh, for you to be plant forward for a lifetime than vegan for you know a month or a week or a summer or even two years um, yeah. because it's just very hard for many people to, to sustain then on the better so once you've sort of reduced what the total amount kind of proportionally um then then when we look at the better options first is animal welfare um, how are these, and unfortunately in the United States, the vast majority, an alarming majority of the meat comes from industrial livestock. 
or CAFOs, mm -hmm. confined animal feeding operations. Maybe you've seen scary documentaries about this. Um, it really is scary. It's it's the opposite of win win win. It is lose 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 in like 50 dimensions. You know, COVID has really brought forward this on the slaughterhouse workers uh, side of things, right? And line speeds and just how dangerous that that job is. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's many, many reasons that it's um, all kinds of problematic. And so you have to find essentially the, what is currently the niche part of the market. Um, and it's more expensive, but it it's reflecting the more true cost, right? How were the animals in the land treated? How were workers treated? Um, so these are things like grass fed coming, uh, really rising up is a, is a kind of meat called regenerative, um, which not only doesn't do as much harm through all the things I mentioned, but it actually restores ecosystems and it can even sequester carbon in the soil. Oh, wow. um, yeah, and so this is like a really exciting area or it's also called managed grazing or diversified farming. So more and more if you find producers who only don't only make that one thing, um, but actually have livestock as part of rotations, as part mm -hmm. of other growing other things. Polyculture is another name for this, this term. Um, that can be, you know, those can be really good signifiers. And, you know, some people have adjustments to the taste. <laughs> I hate to say that's just because we've been eating, you know, really crappy quality <laughs> beef. So it may take a little time to adjust to the to the taste, but the 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 benefits will be worth it. And and I think the other thing is, you know, at, on the cost side is just that it is thinking about that lobster example, it is more reflective of how it the role it should be playing in our lives. Um, right now it's artificially low priced um, in all types of things, right? From a, you know, sausage at a, you know, in a breakfast sandwich, frozen, whatever, um, to those cold cuts to your, you know, dollar burger uh, at, at a fast food, food place. So over time, I think this will be a major cultural shift, but it's one that is well underway. And there's a lot and lot of food operators, food service operators making those options so much more delicious, so much more widely available so that this is not about sacrifice and deprivation. It's it's really this opportunity to also enjoy so many other amazingly good foods because we just have kind of a crutch on on a lot of, you know, red meat products. When it's, if you really took a step back and said, is that what I, of all the things I could possibly eat, <laughs> you know, is that the yeah. most fantastic? Not necessarily. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I mean, beyond the emissions, we, Globally, we have vast destruction of many of our tropical forests for grazing beef, for also growing soy and corn, um, and the the feed, the, feed, exactly. the feed supplements for them. So, um, a lot of room for improvement. And I think you're right; the consumer can make a huge difference in making choices that will stick for a lifetime. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, exactly. And and really, you know, I think the the thrust of that less first less than better is is market signals so mm -hmm. you know we know where the science is pointing but until collectively as the marketplace we use our purchasing power our voting with your dollar voting mm -hmm. with your grocery basket as it's, as it's called um to signal that it it really won't change and, and that's what we need to do is ensure that those producers are disincentivized to continue those practices right um absolutely the deforestation piece is critical and and land use and all of these things um so in the aggregate as i said you can make a difference in making that collective signal and 
it's for your own well-being in the long run. That's great. So for major takeaways, Sophie, what would you say that you'd love the foodie pharmacology audience to walk away from this um, knowing? Okay, so a couple things we've mentioned before, but I'll just package them back together. So one is really that don't let perfect be the enemy of the good and just begin. Um, this is not a um, all or nothing kind of approach. This is, there is no real finish line to conscious eating in my opinion, because what happens once you have these three apertures is that you're just committing to continuous improvement for yourself, mm -hmm. raising your awareness in all kinds of issues. And not only your awareness, but new exposés are constantly coming out. I mean, one of the things that's not even in the book is about child slaver in the child slavery in the chocolate industry. Mm. Why is it not in the book? Because the big exposés came out after. Um, but this is egregious and, and something that you can make a difference through with your chocolate purchases. I give that example because the book is, is a framework for the long run. There are going to be new issues that come to light. That's the whole thrust of transparency um, is bringing out of darkness, um, new areas of science about nutritional impacts, personalized medicine, um, allergen awareness and treatments. Um, all of these areas are rapidly evolving. But once you have that um, mindset, just the, the desire to continuously raise your consciousness and then to do what you can within reason, within your time budget, within your financial budget, um, within your cultural values, your religious beliefs, right? It has to fit within your family yeah. structure and and actually really work for you in the, in the long run. The other one I mentioned, the two around climate, reducing food waste and aiming where possible for that for plant-centric ways of eating. The one thing I wanted to emphasize too on the on is how those two relate, which is that of all the things you waste, the number one thing not to waste is red. Um, so just keeping in mind that all food waste is not created equal, um, and that, you know, you, you do want to pay extra attention to those things that have the higher environmental impact, um, and not wasting those because of everything that went into them. Um, and then I think the, the last thing I would leave you with is, is really, um, a general goal of, of stepping into this right that you have to know, um, from my perspective, transparency and traceability uh, are the names of the game in conscious eating and the third party certifications seafood watch for sustainability or for sustainable seafood organic you know um different animal welfare certifications these are the referees of that transparency game and so when you're feeling overwhelmed when you're feeling like how do i know how do i know what to believe how do i know this isn't just greenwashing or isn't just um, you know, marketing language, it's really helpful to turn to those as kind of mental shortcuts um, because they've done the work for you. You've just decided what values you want reflected in your food. Um, and some of those, those stamps can essentially be um, exemplars for a whole host of benefits that have been accounted for, that somebody went and actually verified were in place. And, and I think that can help you feel assured that what you're buying is what you're trying to, uh, to again, have reflected, um, in, in your food purchases. That's great. I love, I love the idea of really learning how to use those as tools as we make these choices. That's really yeah. important. Great. Yeah, well, um, Sophie, where can people find out more about your book? 
Yeah, so you can check out sophieegan.com for more information about the book. And then um, you can find me on Twitter at sophieeganm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really enlightening. Thank you so much. It was really fun. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Zoom during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this and other episodes on our website at foodiepharmacology.com or on YouTube at Teach Ethnobotany under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. Great. That was fantastic. <laughs>